Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We are joined today by a rarity in the theater, a working actor who works quite regularly. <laughs> Looks like all the time from your list of credits. Dana Ivey, welcome to Downstage Center. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. You have a tremendous list of credits. I'm just going to embarrass you for a second. Okay. A couple. At Lincoln Center Theater currently, you're starring as Mrs. Malaprop in The Rivals. You've also appeared at Lincoln Center in Henry IV and Sex and Longing. At the Roundabout, uh, Day in the Death of Joe Egg, Major Barber, the subject was Roses. On Broadway, a Tony nomination for Heartbreak House. Also a Tony and Drama Desk nomination for The Last Night of Ballyhoo and a uh, Sunday in the Park with George. Again, another uh, Tony nomination. I guess it was a Drama Desk Award for The Last Night of Ballyhoo, to be honest yes. about that. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, Off-Broadway, you originated the role of Miss Daisy in Driving Miss Daisy. Yes. In more than a couple movies, including The Color Purple, The Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle, Sabrina, Legally Blonde 2, and now The Rivals. Yep. It's one of the newest shows on Broadway, yet one of the oldest. Yes. It's from the 18th century. Written in 1775. Right. By Richard Brinsley Sheridan. And he only wrote three plays. This was his first play. He wrote it when he was 25, and it was put on in 1775. And it's been sort of a a standard in um, English dramatic literature ever since. Now, it's a play that you had the opportunity to be in before and play this role before. Yes, I was very lucky in 98 up at Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts. They did a production of The Rivals and asked me to do Mrs. Malaprop, which I did. And of course, up there, it's well, this is a very different production, but up there uh, was my first essay of the role and um, had a great time. It was a lovely production, very sweet and, and fun. Of course, you only have two weeks of rehearsal up at Williamstown. We had considerably more down here at Lincoln Center. So when you get to do a role a second time, obviously a different production, different director, other actors, but you certainly come to it having made some choices at about how you were going to play the role. How did that play into what, what you were working on here, and, and how did you and the director decide what she'd be at Lincoln Center? Well, I came in, it's true, with sort of what I had done in the previous production, which, as I said, uh, was a product of a very short rehearsal period. So you just kind of throw up your initial whatever you can do kind of to get through it. Mark Lamos had also, uh, the director, had done a production of this at Hartford Stage Company when he worked there, and it was quite successful. And I think he had a somewhat different take on the character and gave me a lot of notes, and we worked together. And so my performance is very much an amalgamation of what he, his input and what I brought to the table. But I certainly changed what I brought in initially um, but from working with him and uh, with the rest of the cast. Having seen that earlier production up at Hartford that Mark did, you are a a sterner Mrs. Malaprop than than in the earlier production, and it's certainly been written about that you often get cast in roles that call for someone who's a bit forbidding. How does how does that work for you? Because in real life, you're a lovely lady sitting here in your <laughs> sweater on a on an afternoon in New York. Right. I don't understand it uh, myself. I, I must have some karmic forbidden. Not in me. I don't know what that is. Um, 
that that that's what people see when they uh, see my performances because <clears throat> although I think Mrs. Malaprop is certainly full of admonitions and a very strict sense of what is proper uh, and as have been some of the other characters that I've played naturally I I come to them from a very loving and humane point of view in order to love them as I must do to play them and I don't see them as anything but correct in their point of view. So um, it's hard for me to uh, to understand the, the sort of disapprobation with which people view the characters that I play. Now, the role that you're playing, Mrs. Malaprop, that w- name has actually become a noun in our yes, language. it certainly has. That comes, I guess, from the French, is it? Malapropos? I suppose so. I, I believe it, it roughly translates as inappropriate. Yes. Where Mrs. Malaprop makes mm-hmm. inappropriate comments. She, well, it's not so much the comments. She just chooses the wrong word. But she pronounces them perfectly. She pronounces the words perfectly. They're just not <laughs> quite the right words for, the mo- for what she's trying to say. Yeah. Words like when uh, Mrs. Malaprop is talking to Sir Anthony regarding her niece. She says, I am sorry to say, Sir Anthony, that my affluence over right. my niece is very small. Right. Rather than influence. Right, right. Yeah. What are some of the other uh, come to mind? Oh, my favorite is, I guess, uh, he is the very pineapple of politeness instead of the <laughs> pinnacle, you know. And, um, you know, she's as headstrong as an allegory on the banks of the Nile. Things like that. You know, they're all just... they're. Close enough that you understand what she means, right. but um, they're not quite right. And it puts the audience in hysterics. Yes, they think it's very funny, as you do when you hear something that you, when you hear things incorrectly, it always is amusing, you know. And it, we we all hear things incorrectly from time to time, but then to hear them spoken, actually spoken incorrectly, is just amusing. Yeah, and your brain kind of fills in the blanks. Exactly, so you know what's going on? Exactly, yeah. it's like if you can read this, those advertisements you used to see on the bus and the subway, you know. For that shorthand writing. Now, the story of the rivals is kind of both a combination of Mrs. Malaprop's, Malaprop's, but also mistaken identities. Uh, uh, one of the characters is mistaken for somebody else. I yes. Mean, that's, it's kind of a It's part. very, very classic uh, mistaken identity. Young lovers trying to get away from the old people. Um, I mean, this goes back to the Romans and the Greeks These the, as the basis of a comedy. And, um, yes, we have a wonderful character who is passing himself off as some other kind of person to the young lady that he's in love with. And, um, you know, horrified to have her find out who she really is because of her romanticizing his uh, the character that he's portraying himself as. So it's a very complex but actually simple situation. And the old people, um, Mrs. Malaprop is uh, pushing for one guy, and her and Sir Anthony, uh, the boy's father, is pushing for him but not realizing he's really himself. I can't even begin to explain it in another guise. Anyway, it's it's a great deal of fun, the the, the confusion that reigns. And you're surrounded by some very fine actors. Absolutely. Of course, uh, played by Richard Easton. Yeah, he's just the complete C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T actor. He's just fantastic. Uh, He can do anything. He's wonderful. And he's just a definitive Sir Anthony. Well, when you get into this, this world, it's, it's, you're not playing naturalism when you're doing a show like this. It's completely stylized. Yes. And it was interesting, um, I heard from a number of people early on that people were saying, gosh, the, 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 the adults in the show get it right off. Stylistically, how does the company come together? Because you have younger actors who haven't done as much of this work, whereas you've been doing 
classical work, a range of work over many years. How does that come together for you all? Well, it seems to be coming together for the audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but is there a process of, of meeting of the minds to find the level? Well, I certainly haven't talked with the the kids, and I think that's really in the director's hands. And I think Mark did a great job in terms of working with everybody in the cast to make it all sort of come up to one playing level. Um, I think that the young people we have in the cast. We're very lucky to have them because I think they all have an incredible sense of language and um, and fit into the style very well when it's shown to them and pointed out to them. So I think they're doing a fantastic job. You know what's interesting in Lincoln Center, the Vivian Beaumont, the way the stage is constructed is like a uh, an appendage on the front of it, the, yeah. the curved uh, tongue area, I guess you yes. could call it, which kind of puts you guys up on the stage out into the audience. Yeah. And it's a small house compared to many theaters where they go way back, the cavernous, many theaters. This theater, there's not a bad seat in the house, so you're very close to the audience, yes. which gives it a certain intimacy. Yes, it does. It's a sort of an abbreviated thrust based sort of on the Stratford-on-Avon, uh, Stratford-Canada stage, which has that tongue. This uh-huh. is a more rounded tongue. It doesn't mm-hmm. stick out quite so much. But it's true. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of semicircle, and everybody uh, gets a great view of the proceedings. Yeah. And is that much the same as it would have been 200 and some odd years ago when the show was first written? No, I don't think so. I think they, they were in primarily a much more proscenium type of theater oh, for what this was written for, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would have been a much more what we could think of as a standard theater. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to do any, any, uh, any research into the role or into the playwright before... Well, I didn't. You, you had performed it before. I performed it before. I, the thing is, I'm, I'm, I love history, and this is also a period of history that is uh, particularly interesting to me. I've read a lot about it. I've done, read biographies of the period. Um, I've read a lot of the plays of the period. And <clears throat> when we started into rehearsals just before that, I read started on the biography of Sheridan, the playwright, um, by Fenton O'Toole. And I'm now reading, just about to finish reading a biography of the Duchess of Devonshire, who uh, figured um, in the Whig Party with Sheridan when he became uh, a member of Parliament. So that's been something that I've been using as a kind of uh, just keeping my mind in that era sort of thing. And it's worth noting, since you're reading up on the history, I have to ask, um, apparently The Rivals was one of the earliest examples of where uh, a few weeks out of town might have helped, that the show actually opened, was poorly received, and then was rewritten again? Yes. It yeah, opened and was... back in 1775. Oh, yeah, in 1775. The very first performance was longer. It had... Um, <clears throat> the. There's an Irishman in, in the play called Sir Lucius O'Trigger. Sheridan himself was Irish, and at the time, there was a great deal of the Irish question in England, and so the Irishman was felt to be far too much of a stereotype and a bit of a put-down, so he changed that. He felt that Sir Anthony was a little bit uh, too uh, appreciative of Lydia Languish, the young woman that uh, he was going to marry his son to, so he may cut that back a little bit because it seemed indelicate, and just sort of tightened it up all the way around, and when it came back on, it was a huge hit. <laughs> so. Well, to go from the rivals, because we want to talk about really the extraordinary range of work that you've had in your career, you had this incredible succession of shows that I look at that happened when you when you really started working on Broadway in very, very fast order. Present Laughter, Heartbreak House, Sunday in the Park with George, Pack of Lies, 
Marriage of Figaro, and these were all. This was all in the space of about two years. Well, three, three and a half. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> then, then, then my research is unreliable. But, but regardless, it's an amazing run of shows in a short space of time. And heretofore, you'd been working regionally and off Broadway, primarily. What was what was it like in that period, especially with two of those shows garnering you Tony nom- two Tony nominations in the same year? That was quite extraordinary, as you may may imagine. I mean, I was hungry to do something on Broadway, and I'd been here for five years and couldn't get arrested. And when I got Present Laughter, which was my first big show on Broadway, um, I was so thrilled. And then to go into Heartbreak House, I I love Shaw. I'd been at the Shaw Festival uh, two seasons, and so I really wanted to... um, I've always loved Shaw. So I was thrilled to do Heartbreak House. And then to get the chance to do a a Stephen Sondheim musical on Broadway sort of was, you know, the icing on the cake, and it was a thrill. And then to be nominated for those two parts in one year was, um, I was over the moon. I was just, my feet didn't touch the ground for a while. But then, normally when you look at just a listing of Broadway credits, and we we actually see a gap for a period of time, you'd say, gee, what happened in those years? But you you happened on this, 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 to be cast in this small play by a writer who previously had only been really doing book work on musicals, not known for plays. Did you have any idea what Driving Miss Daisy was going to be? Not a not an iota, no. I had just finished my first year, my only year, in uh, sitcom land. I had been out in L.A. doing Easy Street, <clears throat> the, the star of which was Lonnie Anderson, and I had wanted to break away from some theater work and do some other kind of work that was kind of nine to five and five days a week, unlike the theater schedule. So I had that experience, and I learned a lot from it, and I came back from it. We didn't know whether it was going to get picked up or not. And there was the opportunity to do this. Um, it amounted to, it felt kind of like a workshop. It was very, very off-Broadway. I remember going in to meet Alfred Urey and, and Ron Lagomarsino, the director. Um, and I took in a picture of me when I had played an old woman in a Jack Hefner play as a sort of show-and-tell. And... Um, I subsequently got the part, and I was thrilled to do it because I thought, oh, good, now I'm going to be exercising some acting muscles. I really haven't had a chance to exercise since I was in college when I played a lot of character parts, and that'll be fun. And um, somewhere along the line there, we found out that our show out in California wasn't picked up, and I felt this tremendous relief and was thrilled to be working in this play that had become... uh, just kept growing and growing and growing inside of me uh, so so amazingly it became so important to me as it did to many people who came to see it so uh, i had no idea when i went in on it that it was going to turn out to be such an enormous hit so you'd not known alfred you both from atlanta i had not but- known him he sort of knew who i was because i'd done some plays in atlanta and my mother had done a lot was, was sort of the queen of atlanta theater at one time and he knew my, my mother uh, so we had, as soon as we met, we had immediate references and, you know, sort of felt like we'd known each other all our lives. Well, since you mentioned your mother, I need to ask you, you had the very rare occurrence, probably, of a role that you created on stage. Yes. Your mother subsequently played 
the role as well. Yes, we think it's probably the only time in history that a daughter has created the part and been followed in it by her mother. My mother played Daisy in Driving Miss Daisy in Atlanta, Georgia, um, for well over a year, longer than I played it in New York, and her production subsequently went to Moscow and to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And I offered to be the dresser come understudy on that, (laughs) on both of those, but they wouldn't have me. Really? Why not? It was a matter of how many people they could Uh, take. (laughs) How did it feel then, sitting there watching your mother reinterpret the role you created? It was just so interesting. (laughs) I've seen her. I had seen her in so many Uh plays. Um, It was just, I can't begin to describe it. It was a very interesting, it was a very different production from the one that we did in New York. Now, I read somewhere that you have always wanted to be on the stage since age six. You you wanted to act. Yes. Is that... True. It's true. Yes. Did your mother, being an actress herself, ever try to talk you out of that? Yes, she did, actually. Um, She used to direct the plays at Georgia Tech for many years, and she would just get into such a tizzy about getting them together and the the engineer boys that she was trying to work with, and one thing and another, it would drive her crazy. She she once made me promise never to be a director, <laughs> but she didn't make me promise not to be an actress. Why, why not to be a director? Well, because she was just having, she was going through such contortions with directing these plays at Georgia Tech. It was driving her mad. So, she was having trouble. So. So, you, so you promised your mother you would never never direct? Yeah, and then I took over her, her role, her job, at Georgia Tech for three years and directed the so place in her place. <laughs> so that worked out. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, did, have you ever uh, professionally since then considered directing? Oh, no, not really. I mean, I've, I've many times, and I'm sure most actors do at sometime or another, you know, I've often thought, oh, gee, I'd like to do that. And, you know, you get pretty opinionated the older you get. And you think, oh, well, I could do better than that, or I'd like to try my hand at this. But when you work with really good directors, as I have had the privilege of doing I realize that I don't have what they have in terms of, uh, I don't know, the kind of conceptualizing that goes all the way into the detail. Um, really good directors are, are amazing people. And um, I, I just don't think I could be as good as they. And if I, don't, if I can't be as good as them, I don't want to do it. So it's kind of <laughs> stick to what you know and what yeah, you do exactly. well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, I said at the outset that you're one of those rarities, an actor who works on a regular basis. And we, between Howard and myself, have read just a few of your many, many, many credits. You seem to be working all the time. To, to what do you attribute that? Well, it's interesting you say that because many people say that to me. And, of course, I don't feel that at all. I mean, I've had huge gaps this year when I wasn't working. So I, I feel like I'm not working all the time. And, and I have nothing whatsoever in the works. Uh, when this play closes January 23rd. So um, I still live the actor's hand-to-mouth existence with no security, no job security at all. So I think it's just sort of in the eye of the beholder um, about whether I'm working all the time or not. I don't feel like I am, but um, it seems to appear that way to other people. Now, you, you do live here in New York. I've lived in New York for, for 28 years, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously like it here. Oh, I love it here. I get very frustrated because I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and I like, you know, I also like trees and mm-hmm. yards and soft summer air and that sort of thing. But um, uh, the cultural benefits of living in New York are just unsurpassable. I go, I'm a member of the museum and have been for many years, the Metropolitan Museum, and I go there for lectures and uh, just for exhibits and to pass the time I, I you know the music that you can hear here is just um you can't get it anywhere else in the world really mm-hmm. do you uh, do you have any special hobbies other than the theater or the cultural 
Well, I, I read and always have been a big, big reader uh, voraciously. As I said, I love history and historical fiction. Right. And um, uh, in the last 10 years, I've become something of an amateur Egyptologist. Mm. And I've been to Egypt now um, for extended visits. And um, I really am fascinated by ancient Egypt. So that's sort of become, I, I don't, wouldn't call it a hobby because it's not something I do with my hands or do anything with every day, but it's a, it's a great interest of mine. I noticed that with several of the shows that you've been in, you've had the rare opportunity of having your stage work filmed. Uh, there's, there was the television versions, Heartbreak House, Sunday in the Park with George, The Hamlet with Kevin Kline. Yeah, there's three. work that you've done originally for film. You understand it's being filmed. How does that play for you when you look at yourself in a stage production that's been done for television? Do you have a chance to – have you altered your performances for that? Well, or? interestingly, in Heartbreak House and in Hamlet – well, particularly Heartbreak House, which happened some months after the production, we had a new rehearsal period on the new set that was going to be our set for this this uh, television videoing of it. So that was was quite a wonderful experience because we all came and we were all so sure of what we were doing and our lines, but everything had to be changed in terms of blocking for the cameras. Um, and certain things were changed, uh, even in the playing, just in terms of intensity for the cameras. So that was a very interesting experience. For Hamlet, we, we did it much more quickly after the uh, stage performance. And again, though, we were on a very different set. It was in a, a, a studio. So... Um, the performances had to change to accommodate the new set and and performing for the camera and for microphones. Sunday in the Park was filmed on the stage itself, so that was much more just um, uh, it, it just captured the stage performance. Really, it wasn't changed the way as much as I changed the other two. Now, contrasting these different performances of the same work, do you have a preference for one medium over the other, for stage versus film versus television? I, I have to say I'm a stage bunny. I've always right. loved the stage. I grew up wanting a to be on... stage bunny? I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> I like I that. I just made that up. I don't know. Dana Ivy stage bunny. <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. Um, but I grew up wanting to be on the stage. It was... Uh, although uh, my childhood, like so many people's, was colored by uh, Hollywood pictures in the 50s. Um, and, of course, I had uh, wonderful uh, f- fantasies of being in some of those wonderful b- biblical pictures that they had back then and um, being a movie star. But I think stage, because I was around it so much with my mother, I would go to see the shows that I saw shows that she was in. I saw shows she directed. I was in my first play when I was in the first grade with the Children's Civic Theater of Atlanta. And um, so... I think the theater was always a, a reality to me, whereas the movies were not. Mm-hmm. And um, I have really enjoyed being in the movies that I've been in. It, for me, it's um, it's a very different kind of thing because it is true that on stage, once you're out there, you're in charge. But in the movies, your performance can be radically changed through editing. And... Um, so I guess I just don't feel as much in charge or as much like an actor, although the actors that I know who do film and are wonderful, I don't know how they do it. I think it's fantastic how they how they manage to do it under those circumstances. But, but also when you're on stage, not only 
are you out there in charge? You're also out there as though diving into a pool. You can't go back. You're hanging. Yes, you're, you're you're hanging twisting out there. in the wind, as they used to say. Uh, yeah, you're out there. So there has to be a, a large <laughs> adrenaline rush yeah. or whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a. I guess there's a little bit of a feeling of danger. I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't like danger under normal circumstances, but there is that kind of feeling of of rising to the occasion and it uh, uh, sort of lifting your energy. Um, and it's very exciting. Now, we, you were talking about, talked about you wanting to act from the time you were a child. And, and when we were, I was doing some research, I turned up a credit that when I asked you about this before we went on the air, you, you, you sort of gasped. And, yes. uh, can, can you tell us the story of appearing on the television series The Beachcomber when oh, you were, uh, you said you were in college? When I would you did love this. to see that again. I was a senior in college, I was a theater major. They were filming at, um, I think they were building, or was Disneyland just built? It was near, I went to Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, so it was nearby. And, um, I it was I played some kind of your character South, was Kalana. Kalana some sort of uh South Sea Islands princess or lady or something I don't know. All I know is that they put body makeup all over me everywhere and I'd never had that done before and that was a shock. And then I wore this sort of sarong thing and um I didn't have a whole lot to do but it was uh it was an indelible experience having that body makeup put on me. Um, indelible, literally? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get it off. I've never seen it. I think I might have seen it when it first came out, but I don't I don't really have any memory of it. And I, I don't even remember much of what I did, except that I was just overawed of being around this, this television shooting situation. It just... I, I felt like the country mouse come to town. I didn't know, you know, it was it was scary and exciting and um, better best forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 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 lost performance of Dana <laughs> Ivy because it was uh, about twenty years before you turned up on television and film again. Yes, yes, yes. Because I after I after I uh, graduated from college, um, I studied for a year in London at um, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And when I came home, I went into theater. I was in regional theater in Memphis. I went and worked in Canada for almost eight years. I became an immigrant up there and worked in theaters across Canada, came back and worked in the Atlanta Alliance Theater again for a while. I didn't have any opportunity to do or try to do any other medium. Well, you've been involved in the theater virtually your whole life and yes. certainly professionally for many, many years here in New York. Yes. How do you view the theater currently, the, the current state of Broadway, off-Broadway, the theater across America in general? Is it healthy, do you think? You know, the fabulous invalid is always just getting a new disease um, <laughs> and recovering from the other one. Um, <clears throat> I've said for a while that I think that the theater is, um, I don't know if bifurcating is the right word, but it's like it's moving into, so many people think of Broadway theater now as musicals, as only musicals. And um, the musical spectacle of Broadway theater has become um, what, so many people equate with Broadway that straight plays and new straight plays particularly um, just sort of aren't on the radar. Uh, the theater cognoscenti go to them and really enjoy them. But I think for the the larger audience, they um, 
that just sort of don't exist. I think that regional theaters are have a much better following for straight plays. And although I've done musicals and I love musicals, I'm, I've basically done straight legitimate theater all my life. So I don't know what's happening with it. I, I, I think it will always be around, but I think it's always reconfiguring itself for the society that it exists in. Well, how about the uh, sort of the current rage of one-person shows yeah. and also the the large spectacle shows, be it Dis- Disney or whomever? Yeah. What, what do you think about those? Well, the large spectacle shows, I mean, they certainly get a lot of people to come to them, um, and that's how they can pay for them being so large and spectacular. And the one-person shows are... A lot about the fact that it's just simply so expensive to do theater these days that commercially people can't really uh, have a really hard time um, doing it as a profit-making thing. Um, uh, Lincoln Center is a not-for-profit theater, as are a lot of the theaters that I've uh, worked for. Commercial theater... People, producers who want to make money putting on a play have a much harder time these days, and that's why a one-person play um, is attractive. Before we wrap up, I have to ask, I had the opportunity yesterday to talk with the director of The Rivals, Mark Lamus, and he told me that you had first worked together some 20 years ago at the California Shakespeare, yes. Shakespeare Festival, and then this year you've actually done two shows together. Yes. Uh, you did uh, The Big Mama in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the Kennedy Center and then came into The Rivals, and Mark's comment was, he said, gosh, after doing these two shows with her back-to-back, I'd just work with her in anything. What What are the roles that you have yet to play that you'd like to play? Oh, my... That's a Pandora's box. Always. That's why we ask him. (laughs) No, I always wanted to play Cleopatra, and I always wanted to play St. Joan, and I'm past them now. So those will just be, you know, lost yearnings. Other than that, I just long to do more Shaw, more... Uh, restoration comedy. I love plays of language and style. Um, of course, as a Southerner, I did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I mean, it just felt like completely natural. Uh, I grew up in that milieu, so I know everything there is to know about it. But um, but I do love p- plays that have language and uh, wit and style to them. So that's what I would like to do more of. You know what strikes me talking with you? How well-spoken you are, and not a single malaprop <laughs> in this entire conversation, except the, the two you did intentionally. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I, I need to remind everybody that uh, the Rivals plays at Lincoln Center, the Vivian Beaumont Theater, through January 23rd. That is the announced closing date of the show. And Dana Ivey is starring in the show as Mrs. Malaprop. It is quite fun. It's a lot of fun. The audiences have such a good time. I mean, you wouldn't think it. Here's the 18th century. Of course, it looks gorgeous. The costumes are fabulous. The set's beautiful. But people absolutely have the best time. They just roll with laughter. So that's thrilling. And not in small part due to your performance, which is not quite over the top, but close to it. Just under the top. <laughs> the uh, character was written that way, I might add. Yes. <laughs> and it allows you a lot of fun, I'm right. sure. Right, it does. Yes. Well, Dana, thanks so much for being with us Thank today on so Downstage much. Center. Thanks a lot. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs, as well as all of the media programs of the American Theater Wing, are available as free streaming audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.